Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Beltasor. We are here to deliver the scouting report up against the Missouri Tigers, and we're just going to go ahead and dive <clears throat> excuse me, straight into their offensive stats from the previous year. They were a 6-17 with a 3-5 conference record. 1,904 rushing yards, 4.2 yards per attempt, 19 touchdowns, 2,548 passing yards, 7.4 yards per attempt with a 63.4% completion percentage, 14 passing touchdowns to 9 interceptions, a third down percentage of 39%, and a red zone percentage of 59% touchdowns and 80% scoring, allowing 23 sacks on the year and averaging 25.5 points per game. Now, you may notice a few things here. Um, First and foremost being that, uh, well, the rush and pass numbers aren't necessarily what you would call balanced. And that is despite the fact that a lot of the offense really would rather rush than anything else. But that is the offensive side of the ball. Unless you have anything else to say about it, Connor, you have the defensive stats. Yeah, so defensively, they allowed 25 points per game last season. Uh, They allowed 2,519 pass yards and 15 passing touchdowns. And they allowed 1,526 rushing yards and 18 touchdowns. And then in the red zone, they gave up touchdowns 66% of the time, and they allowed a score 91% of the time. They had 10 interceptions, 16 fumbles, and 33 sacks, and they had a turnover differential of minus 2. Yeah, so they weren't amazing against... Well, they were generally solid against both, but not necessarily what you would describe as great... But, I have you for who they are returning from the previous year, and that includes starting quarterback Brady Cook, who was their leading passer and second leading rusher last year, the returning Cody Schrader, who was their leading rusher last year at running back, returning Luther Burden, who is their third receiver in terms of yards, but their touchdowns leader, returning Jalen Carleys, the leading tackler, Tyron Hopper, the second leading tackler and probably their best linebacker. Returning Chad Bailey, their third leading tackler, uh, Dalen Carnell, their interceptions leader, Ennis Rakestraw, who was their outside starting corner, and then added two people in terms of Jake Garcia, the quarterback from Miami, though he probably won't play, and Theo Weiss, the old friend receiver from Oklahoma. So that's a pretty good amount of production that they're returning on both sides of the ball, but that does not mean that they didn't lose anything. Yeah, they lost quite a bit, um, well, specifically uh, in two focused areas, on the defensive line and then at receiver. But starting, uh, they lose Isaiah McGuire, their sack leader. He was drafted by the Cleveland Browns in the fourth round. And then they also lost uh, DJ Coleman and Ed Rusher, uh, who was their second leader in sacks, and he was an undrafted free agent to Jacksonville. Uh, And then receiver, they lost three, uh, including uh, their best by far, uh, Dominic Lovett. He transferred to Georgia, uh, and he was the leading receiver last year. Then Toski Dove, uh, he transferred to Memphis. And then Barrett Bannister uh, was their second leading receiver, uh, and he graduated. So some pretty significant losses there on the offensive skill position side. Yeah, especially in the receiving room, and that was a pretty big part of their offense last year. 
But in terms of what they've done this year, they've had two games. Their first was their FCS matchup against South Dakota, which they won 35-10. And then they had a head-scratcher against Middle Tennessee, where they only won by four points, 23-19. Leaves them with a 2-0 record, and Connor, you have them up until their defensive stats towards the bottom there. So right now they sit at 2-0, and um, and they have 323 rushing yards on the year, but they're only averaging 3.8 yards per attempt. Uh, and then passing-wise, uh, they have 430 yards at 9.6 yards per attempt, four touchdowns to one interception, four rushing touchdowns, uh, and that's four uh, touchdowns through the air. And then their third down percentage is 56.52%. So they're converting their third downs pretty well. Uh, but still, the offensive efficiency on the ground, which is what Mizzou wants to do, is not great. Yeah, no, it's not at all. But on defense, their third down percentage is 35.5%, which is pretty solid. Uh, they're averaging 29 points per game with a total of 58.4. Having minus one turnover differential because they have yet to record an interception. Uh, they have six total sacks, and in terms of red zone defense, they're allowing a score 100% of the time, which sounds bad. Then you look at it, and they're only allowing a touchdown 60% of the time, which is significantly better. But in terms of offense, they're score. Hmm, excuse me, that was a hiccup. 88.9% of the time, with 77% of those being touchdowns. So, all in all, you look at the stat line, and it seems kind of unremarkable, given who they've played. Yeah, it's definitely not great. Uh, through two games, you kind of expect that maybe through one game to have an anomaly, but to have that stat line after South Dakota, Middle Tennessee State, it's uh, not the best look. Um, although uh, um, Drinkwitz, the coach at Mizzou, he has uh, kind of went on record today, pretty much admitting to looking past Middle, Middle Tennessee State for the K State game. So that um, could explain some of it uh, that he was looking forward to a Super Bowl, but it's. Uh, Remains to be seen, I guess, how that changes uh, when they face K-State. But regardless, the offensive stats, not very good. Yeah, not at all. But before we get into the scouting report portion, talking about their offensive, defensive tendencies, here's a quick word from today's sponsor. And welcome back, everybody, where we're going to begin discussing the Missouri offense, and just more generally, the best way to describe them would be a really sick mixture of the pistol slash Shanahan systems, which if you know what that means, you know that it's a system that a lot of the NFL has started running, especially since the, the late uh, 2010s, but the difference is, is that this one has none of the bootlegs that make the Shanahan system work really well. Uh, they're 98th in the country in yards per play at 4.6 after playing an FCS team in Middle Tennessee State. Uh, they're 42nd in time of possession with a wide zone run-first offense, also against an FCS team in Middle Tennessee State. And a lot of the offense is just really kind of inconsistent with it because you'll get one or two sustained drives and then you'll get multiple drives where just absolutely nothing happens, which it's part of the frustration with this team that I have felt personally. But in terms of personnel, they're pretty similar to most modern spread offenses, run a lot of 11 personnel, sometimes some 10. 
Uh, they have a noted preference for 2x2 two two sets, which is two receivers each side, but still do have a pretty decent share of trips built into the offense. So in a lot of ways, they're very similar to those more you know, spread pistol-style offenses that have proliferated throughout college football in particular. Um, one of the most famous of which would be the Clemson system under Trevor Lawrence. But, uh, you know, this one is considerably less competently called. Which, speaking of, Connor, you have the play-calling concepts. Yeah, we go to their run-pass split, and it becomes extremely obvious uh, just how much they want to run the ball. Uh, their run-pass split right now is 67-33 to 33 in favor of running the ball. Uh, and then in the running game, uh, like we've mentioned already, it's all wide zone. That's what they want to do first and foremost. Uh, nearly 50% of their plays uh, go to the edge or off tackle. So they're still running the ball a lot and trying to get the ball to the um, outside quite a bit. And then the passing game, um, play action on 13% of their dropbacks. Uh, like screens a lot, 15.2% of their dropbacks. Uh, and they like uh, go outs concept. Uh, so they um, have a go ball outside, five to eight yard out from the slot. Um, and then they also run a lot of motion. Uh, we've faced, we're going to face a lot of teams that like motion this year. That's just part of it. Uh, but they like motion across the formation. Uh, it's a good coverage indicator. There's not a lot of reason to not do it, at least sometimes, in modern college football. Uh, so I uh, can't really blame them there. But, yeah, they want to go wide zone a lot, and they want to find ways to get their very athletic receivers open deep. Uh, that's the, that's pretty much the gist of their offense. They, they want receivers to catch go balls for explosive touchdowns, and they want to run wide zone. Yep. Yeah, that's our offense. You're beginning to see how it can be a little bit frustrating when your offense consists of either throw deep, wide zone, or occasional five-yard out route. I'm not saying I have experience with this or anything, but... Anyway, now we can talk about the man under center, and that would be number 12, Brady Cook. Has a 75.1 PFF grade, 70 in the passing game, and a 68.9 in the running game. And what I'll say about Brady Cook is I would not recommend listening to the majority of MU fans like talking about Brady Cook because if you listen to them, he's the worst. He's the worst quarterback in FBS. He's not. He's a perfectly serviceable Power Five starting quarterback who has a few flaws, but what starting quarterback in FBS doesn't outside of like you know Caleb Williams. But his number one thing is he just hates pressure, and he can't operate under that pressure. His PFF grade nearly halves when he's under pressure. He goes from an 81.5 uh, 81. to a 41.2 and a 34.6 in the passing game specifically, which uh, is very stinky, very gross, very nasty. And the worst part is he just doesn't help himself at all in this regard. Because he just holds on to the ball way too long at times because he's just not there in terms of, you know, processing defenses particularly quickly. Which is why I think they like that go-outs concept so much. Because it's basically one read. Where's the corner going and do you like the matchup they're going? If no, throw the out. But it, that's just really how he operates. 
and he generally likes attacking the short and intermediate parts of the field way more than anyone else. In fact, two-thirds of his passes fall within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage or just behind it. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, if you adjust that to within 15 yards of the line of scrimmage, it gets ridiculous. It's like 78% or something like that. But, which is strange, because his functional arm strength is actually pretty solid, and it's a pretty obvious tier above everyone else we've seen. That's uh, Gutter Watson and uh, Paxson De Laurent from uh, SEMA, which I guess is to be expected. He is a power five starter. But still, it, it's notable to say that he has a decent arm. It's not great. It's fine. It's good in terms of power five level. His accuracy is also pretty all right whenever he's kept clean, but uh, he has a different perception of kept clean than most of us. He just hates the idea of having someone within two feet of him, so that's where the pressure really starts to, to bother him. And that's where I think a lot of people think that Brady Cook is just bad, where he just has a really, really quick trigger in terms of pressure. He's also just not a very good deep passer in terms of accuracy. Um, but in terms of scrambling, he's a plus athlete, which is weird because he's still, like, he started waiting too long this year from deciding when to actually go. Because this year, you could argue he was too good at, like, getting out of the pocket. He was too quick to do it. This year, it seems to be the opposite problem. I do kind of expect regression in the mean in that front, but it, he is someone that you do have to watch in terms of scrambling, which isn't something we've had to do yet. Yeah. Uh, so now we can get into the running backs. Uh, there's two guys here, um, Cody Schrader, number seven, and then Nathaniel Pete, number eight. We'll start with Schrader. Uh, his PFF grade is a 74.4. Uh, not a great uh, grade in the passing game, 53.5. Uh, but his run run game is solid, 75.7. Uh, this shows that he's definitely not a guy that you want in on third down. Uh, but he's a fairly solid running back still. He's not a burner by any stretch of the imagination, but his acceleration is good. Um, he likes to create bad angles and has a good uh, uh, can get people off balance and has good contact balance himself. Um, and then his vision is okay. Um, it's not a strong suit. Uh, he's an inside runner first and foremost, uh, and uh, he still will at times though get lost. And his pass protection is suboptimal at best. And he, he's just an all-around fine running back. Uh, I, I There's not a lot, really, to, to say about him that hasn't been said already, I guess. And then there's Nathaniel Pete, an 80.3 PFF grade, an 85.3 grade in the pass game, a 74.9 uh, grade in the run. Uh, so he he's the third down back. Um, he has a fumble problem, uh, well, specifically against Auburn last year. And uh, um, he definitely has more outside ability than Schrader. Um, he is not the power back that Schrader is, but he can get around people. Um, although he really isn't a burner still. Neither of these running backs are super, super fast or anything. Uh, but Pete is still a really good receiver. And he uh, is twitchier. He's more elusive. Uh, so he, he's a solid receiving back. And he's a serviceable running back. So you, you can't complain too much about what you get from Nathaniel Pete. Uh, but he isn't, you know, an unbelievable running back. But he, he's solid. He's good. He's someone that could, like, leverage his way into getting drafted if he doesn't fumble in the one-yard line against Auburn during overtime. 
Um, yes, I'm still mad. <laughs> I'm still mad about it. Uh, and also a fun fact about Nathaniel Pete: this will be the third time we are facing Nathaniel Pete because he was a Stanford transfer. That's just a fun fact. I don't... <laughs> but in terms of their receiving room, it's led by three people in terms of snap counts at least. Number one, Theo Weiss. Number five, Mookie Cooper. And number three, Luther Burden. Mookie Cooper and Theo Weiss don't really have a whole, whole, whole lot to be said about them. Theo Weiss is the transfer from Oklahoma. He's still very much the same player he was at Oklahoma. He's probably, the of the true receivers, he's the one that's probably the most physical. Uh, if you bump him, he's just going to bump you right back, whether it be in press or whether you're trying to knock him off of his route. And a part of that is he's just trying to uh, run his routes in the most physical way possible, with the aim being more to box you out than it is to do anything else. So he's trying to be a more contested catch guy, trying to body you more or less. Like, kind of try and think of him as like a, a post player who's trying to trying to body you, except for just a lot shorter. Like his, That's his goal, is to box you out more than it is to make you miss. Uh, Mookie Cooper, who has a 46.6 PFF grade, and that's the exact same in the passing game. He has really good hands, but he just hasn't really gotten an opportunity to show them yet. Because um, the rest of his game just sort of falls to him being an, a, a plus athlete. He's still very similar to the next person we're about to talk about. He's still very much learning how to be a like route-running receiver. Which leads us to number three, Luther Burden, who has an 81.6 PFF grade and then an 83.3 in the passing game. He's made a lot of progress from last year towards being more of a receiver than an athlete, but he still isn't. Like he is not refined in his game. His route tree mostly consists of gadget plays, slants, and go balls with the occasional comeback route. His route tree just isn't that developed yet, but it almost doesn't matter that much because he's just such an elite athlete who can make just about anyone pay if they're not paying attention just because he's just so damn slippery and he's so fast with uh, elite acceleration, elite agility, elite speed, Every athletic box that you want ticked for a receiver, Luther Burden ticks it, which is why he's such a good gadget player and why he has the potential to be one of the best receivers in the entire country. He's not there yet. He's still just an elite athlete who happens to be playing outside receiver. If you gave Luther Burden, like, R.J. Garcia's route running, I, I, would, I would just say bracket him. Because there's no way that you're stopping him otherwise. But right now, he's still someone who can do a lot of damage because he's developed his ball skills as well, especially vertically. So he is able to come down with those contested catches. But still, he's not someone that you're going to run on like in routes or deep out routes. But then uh, I'll take Tyler Stevens because what can you say about him? He's a 6'6 tight end that they generally use for blocking and also sometimes motion out into the slot. It's the same thing we said last year. There's not much to say about Tyler Stevens. All right. Yeah, that's it. That's all I got. So I'll take this uh, first left side and then uh, the center uh, for the offensive line. Um, first of all, generally the offensive line is giving up pressure on 24% of their dropbacks. And we can start with their left tackle, Javon Foster, who may be their best offensive lineman. Uh, he, at the very least, has the best PFF grade. 
Uh, he's got an 85.1 PFF, an 80.4 in the pass block, and 84.2 in the run block. Um, he's generally pretty good, uh, um, but he does have some technical flaws, um, like jumping into a kick slide rather than sliding. You know, uh, it's in the name on what you should do. <laughs> um, and he is able to get away with it a lot. Uh, he, humor, he can recover, um, but there is that point when he's kick sliding kick jumping uh (laughs) that he loses the leverage uh that he would otherwise have because he's he's in the air he's not planted uh so um he does sometimes as a result of this um misjudge um how far he needs to jump uh so when he does that he's vulnerable uh because a he doesn't have the leverage like we mentioned previously and b he might end up in the wrong spot uh, relative to the rusher he's going to have to deal with. So there are some ways to attack him as a pass rusher. Uh, and then he also generally takes a moment to collect himself before making an initial punch if the guy isn't right in his face. Uh, so sometimes he is a little slow getting to the next level, um, but otherwise he is a fairly quality left tackle. Uh, then a left guard, you have Xavier Delgado, uh, number 72, uh, he's got a 71.7 PFF grade, a 77.3 pass blocking grade, and a 69.9 run blocking grade. Uh, he's fairly good at making sure he doesn't give up uh, his backside and zone schemes, um, which is a good quality to have because th- there is always the possibility of uh, a zone scheme getting blown up from the back. Uh, but sometimes he will overcompensate on that and uh, lose uh, what's in front of him. Uh, by trying to protect the backside so much. Uh, and then at center, you have uh, Connor Tolleson, number 55, uh, 77.8 PFF grade, a 58.1 pass block grade, and then a 78.1 run blocking grade. I believe he was the starter last year. Uh, the entire left side plus center is the same from last year. Yeah. Uh, and I seem to remember him being a young guy last year mm-hmm. and making a uh, um, comment after the game at a uh k-state was the loudest place he'd ever played yeah that is the prevailing note i think on connor tollison plus he's like he's a generally good center that's about it well that's great good are <laughs> good for him <laughs> he, he's generally good like the rest of the linemen there just isn't too much to say because they're either solid or they're not solid in ways that are like hard to write down other than just saying they're just not <laughs> Uh, Cameron Johnson's their right guard, number 74, 63.4 PFF grade, 73.4 pass block, 66.3 run blocking grade. Uh, He's just one of many cases of linemen trying to body someone and then use their hands to latch on. And this applies both in the running game and the passing game. He just really struggles getting those hands on rather than either waiting to absorb contact or trying to just basically chest bump somebody. Uh, He's not the same as... uh, Oh, whoever it was last week for Troy, where his number one priority was headbutting you. <laughs> but so, congratulations on not having as many concussions. But that's about it. And then their right tackle is Armand Mimbao, number seventy-nine, sixty-point-seven uh, PFF grade, sixty-nine pass block, nice, fifty-nine-point-eight run blocking grade. Um, number one way to describe him: he's a he's a mauler who has a tendency to play too high. That's him. So he's most right tackles in the country. I would describe him as average. 
I think K-State targeted him in recruiting at one point. His name seems familiar. I, I don't really have anything else to say about him. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a unique name, so if, if you think the name's familiar, probably. <laughs> but do you have any final notes on the offense before we move on to the arguably, uh, well, it's not arguably, the, uh, the infinitely more dangerous side of the ball for MU? Um, just that this offense, personnel-wise, despite losing several receivers, does seem extremely similar to the team we faced last year. Uh, not just, I guess, in personnel. I should also extend that to play calling and what they're good at, what they're not so good at. Uh, I guess offensively, they're going to look like a very similar team, at least from what we can tell. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that. I would say that they're offensively, they're very similar to the team last year. And last year's offense wasn't very good. And uh, Eli Drinkowitz, I, I don't think it was his decision, but they hired a new offensive coordinator. And I had, a, as an MU fan, I had a little bit of hope. And then I saw during the Middle Tennessee State game that Eli Drinkowitz had a play calling sheet. And then suddenly all that hope was gone. I'm very sorry. It's <laughs> it's nothing you did. All right, you want to start talking about the defense, which is the the more interesting of the two? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so they play multiple fronts um, defensively from several different angles. Uh, uh, something that we've talked about a lot is that they like to start in a three-man front and they um, hyper-compact uh, on first downs to plug the middle of the defensive line uh, to force any run play unless uh, all three of your interior offensive linemen can win a one-on-one, which I'm not going to count on every single time. Uh, they're going to force you more outside, which uh, will then allow their linebackers to play in space. Uh, and they also, speaking of those linebackers, they like to walk them up and use them as edge players. Um, additionally, they blitz a lot, and they blitz from a lot of different directions. Uh, there's not a lot of reliable ways to know where the rush is coming from uh, if you're an offensive lineman. Um, so it's every single play your head has to be on a swivel um, as an offensive lineman. Uh, then additionally, um, they... Um, have a blending of different coverages from press alignments. Uh, even coverages are not typically run pressed up. Uh, they have a prowler package for third downs where pressure can come from quite literally anywhere. And then, of course, this is all kind of building towards them trying to create uncertainty for the offense and for the quarterback. Uh, Blake Baker, the defensive coordinator, doesn't want you to know where the pressure is going to come from. Uh, what the coverage will be, uh, and who's rushing, uh, which is true for any defensive coordinator, but it's especially true uh, for Missouri. Uh, Blake Baker uh, does a really good job of mixing things up and keeping offenses on their toes. Uh, The biggest weakness of the defense is it's very reliant on getting quick pressure or psyching you out. Uh, mentally if you're able to scramble or if you're able to dissect the pressure early and go through your progressions or if your line just holds uh, then you'll be able to find some uh, gaps in their coverage schemes uh, and you'll be able to make offense work Uh, but you just have to trust your offensive line and uh, not panic too early yeah that's the number one way to defeat this defense is to stay calm. Because, like, they're, it's not an unbeatable 
you're not going up against the Bears. Like you're not going up against the eighty the eighty six Bears. It's not happening. But if you can just stay calm, go through your progressions, you can find a lot of holes short, especially on those later downs where they start walking up those linebackers to send more pressure. But in terms of personnel and coverage, coverages just take your pick, really. They run just about everything. Though they do have a preference for running man coverage with linebackers in zone because of how much they like blitzing. And sometimes they don't even bother putting the linebackers in zone because they're just blitzing. (laughs) The corners do really like starting pressed up, though. It's about 50-50 on whether or not they're getting hands-on or if they're starting to bail. I think that's probably the biggest coverage indicator is whether or not they're going to get hands-on because they both, both of the outside corners tend to flip their hips maybe a second early, um, a second before they really probably need to, before the snap. Uh, if they're going to stay square, they're probably just running press man. If you see them like look towards you a little bit, as you, if you're a quarterback, hi, Maple. If you, if you see them like look towards you, you're probably guessing they're in zone, but, you know, that leads to the discussion of their three interior offensive linemen they have, or at least the uh, three who lead in snaps. Yep, so on the defensive interior, um, the top guy, or the first guy at least, is Jaden Jernigan, as a 74.9 PFF grade, a 76.4 run defense grade, and then a pass rush grade of 61.3. He wears number zero, which I really like when defensive linemen wear single-digit numbers, something I have always liked. I feel like it's the mark of an elite uh, defensive lineman at times. Uh, So um, I know I'd be terrified of facing a nose tackle who wears uh, number zero. Uh, So Jernigan, um, he doesn't have the uh, booming power that you would generally love or expect from somebody on the interior. Um, but his his pass rushing is not really uh, fantastic. His, his main move is uh, he will just shove you really hard and hope that you go off balance. Um, but he doesn't really actually bull rush. And then where he excels most um, is that he um, just is really great at holding his ground in the running game. He stays on assignment, and he is not one... Uh, to get pushed around by the interior offensive line. Uh, he does his job, and that that makes him incredibly valuable um, as a defensive lineman. Uh, moving on to Josh Landry, um, an 83.3 PFF grade, a 73.3 in run defense, and then an 83.1 uh, pass rush. Um, as the grades indicate, he's definitely the bigger pass rushing threat, um, and he always attacks uh, half... Um, half of the man in order to make his rush easier um and then he's quick enough to get to one side of the lineman even if he's about to get double teamed so he's really good at picking and choosing his gaps on a pass rush he's very accurate rusher yeah insane athlete for an interior defensive lineman as well like he that's he kind of leverages his insane athleticism with his ability to just kind of move around and manipulate the blocks (laughs) <laughs> That's what makes him so dangerous from top to bottom. But then you get the big boy. Yep. Christian Williams uh, is the real true nose tackle. He's got a 65.4 P- 
PFF grade, a 63.3 run defense, and a 64 on the pass rush. Um, similar to Jernigan, he's very hard to move, but it's more just by sheer mass uh, than anything. He wants to take up two gaps on most plays, uh, but just isn't quite fast enough to do it. Um, and additionally, he um, definitely has some conditioning issues because uh, a lot of his uh, game is leaning on offensive linemen and uh, just kind of taking up space uh, in that sense. So he uh, um, still is a huge presence to be reckoned with, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, but he isn't as lethal in the uh, technique department. Yeah. In terms of their edge players, it's Johnny Walker, number 15, and then Darius Robinson, number 6. Johnny Walker, take him or leave him. Like, he's an above-average edge rusher, and that's all I can really say. He doesn't even really have one necessarily defined skill set. He's just there on the field and can generate pressure from time to time, which is why he has a 70.6 PFF grade, 72.8 run defense, and then 62.7 pass rush. Darius Robinson is the better of the two. He has a 74.1 PFF grade, 85.8 run defense, and then 60.1 pass rush. The number one thing with Darius Robinson, he just doesn't have an elite first step to start like a truly great bull rush. In fact, he's just a generally all right athlete. But he's very technically sound. And he has a very good arm over move to the inside. And he just doesn't let himself get knocked out of position, especially in the running game. So he's not the type of guy that's going to consistently win every single one-on-one matchup when he's pass rushing. That's just not going to be who he is because he doesn't have that truly amazing like bull rush. He doesn't have the speed to always work the edge. But what he does do is he's remarkably consistent and he's just not going to make any mental mistakes which means that there are times where he's gonna you're gonna walk into him just because he's in the right place and he knows where you're going to be but their edge room is solid but unremarkable is how i would describe it which is the exact opposite of how i would describe their linebacking room which connor you have the the luxury of discussing Yep. So the first guy to discuss is a familiar name, uh, I'd imagine, for a lot of K-State fans because he was all over the place last year and is maybe the best player uh, on this defense. Uh, Tyron Hopper, uh, number eight. His PFF grades are not great, uh, but that doesn't really do him justice. Uh, he's got a 53.8 overall grade, a uh, 62.8 run defense grade. His tackle grade's pretty good at 82.6. And then his coverage grade, not so great, at 39.8. He is a do-everything linebacker, and he's athletic enough and just generally good enough that he really, truly does do everything. Uh, His first step is pretty much always excellent. Uh, He has excellent blitz timing as well. Um, And he's just generally a very athletic person. Uh, However, his speed can get him into trouble at times. Uh, because he does kind of play with his hair on fire like a lot of linebackers do. And uh, so sometimes he can play himself out of position or out of a play uh, when if he was a little bit more deliberate, uh, then he would maybe be more consistent in some ways. But um, 
he's the flip side of the coin on that where he's definitely a home run hitter as a linebacker uh, he uh, will likely be a menace to deal with uh, for the K-State offensive line and for Colin Klein. Yeah, especially because of the blitz timings that he has. Like, It's almost uncanny that even if you're changing up the snap count, he's still going to find some way to perfectly time it. It scares me. Yeah, he is really, really, really good. And uh, his uh, running mate, Chuck Hicks, is also really good as well. Uh, he's very tenacious. Uh, his PFF grades, uh, 78.9 overall, 78.6 in the run game, uh, 84.2 tackle grade, and then a 73.1 coverage grade. Uh, he really likes meeting blocks, and he is okay with that. He wants to disrupt a play by taking up blocks and trying to get people out of position and blow up a particular part of the play. Uh, he's a really good piece of Mizzou's run defense, uh, and he does like absorbing those blocks, but he can shed them as well. Uh, uh, even when he can't force uh, the um, blocker in the direction he wants, he can still try and make an attempt at a play. Uh, and then he's also got pretty good coverage instincts, especially for a linebacker, uh, especially if you try throwing to the flat. Uh, he's a pretty sure tackler as well. Uh, so he alone makes it more difficult to just abuse the flat uh, as an offense uh, because he's got those instincts to get out there quickly, and uh, he is a very sure tackler. So there's not as much that you can do to easily beat Mizzou just by getting to the flats and clearing everything out. Yeah. I think Chuck Hicks is a big reason why the defense, like that's why I say you, you have to wait because you can't just throw to the flat every single time that they're blitzing, because Chuck Hicks is immediately going to be screaming to head out there, which makes me wonder if uh, a wheel route would expose him, because his first steps are always to the front and to the flat. So maybe you could beat him vertically, but throwing to the flat immediately against the blitz isn't going to work, because Hicks is going to be out there. And it's really frustrating. (laughs) But in terms of outside corners, there's Chris Abrams Drain, number seven, or some people call him CAD. Uh, Ennis Rakestraw, number two, is the other one. Uh, Chris Abrams Drain has a 59.5 PFF grade, 83.6 tackling, and a 60.8 coverage grade. Uh, he's really quick to get his hands on the receiver in press. But despite this, it's almost like he's waiting for them to initiate the contact which is such a strange thing for a corner to do because he's literally, this is kind of where I wish we had video for it so I could demonstrate because he's literally just like, he just puts his arms out like waiting for the contact to be initiated, which isn't what you're really supposed to do in press. You're supposed to kind of try and bump them off their route to disrupt the timing. But I don't know. I'm not the corners coach, but Outside of that, Cad's really solid across the board, especially as a tackler. He's probably one of the best tackling corners in the entire country, which makes you wonder why he's not playing the slot, and that's because he still does have legit uh, outside coverage skills. Which sort of leads us to Ennis Rakestraw Jr., who is... No, it's yeah, it's Rakestraw Jr. Uh, 77.4 PFF grade, 82.6 tackling, 72.1 in coverage. Uh, he's almost too good at keeping his eyes on the quarterback in zone. And because of that, he can just kind of lose where his receiver is located sometimes. So you can back shoulder him. That's about all you can do. <laughs> you, 
you can back shoulder him, but otherwise, if if he has eyes on you, it's going to be pretty pretty difficult to sort of shake him loose. So that's really all there is to say about the corners. Like both of the corners are good corners who I think Chris Abrams drains PFF grades a maybe a tad ridiculous. I think probably there's one element that may be lowering it because I think he's better than, you know, slightly above average. But both of the outside corners are pretty good, which uh, leads to, well, two-thirds of the safety room and then the last third, which, uh, spoilers, he's on the team. And that's the best way that you can think about him. Yep, so there's three safeties to keep your eyes on, uh, especially the first two. Uh, Joseph Charleston, number 28, uh, Dalen Carnell, number 13, and then Trevez Johnson, number 4. Charleston, he's got a 62.5 PFF grade, a 62.6 run defense grade, a 71.8 tackling grade, and then his coverage grade is a 63.3. He's probably the best uh, true free safety out of the group, uh, but he still isn't fantastic at it. He's definitely a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Uh, as a safety goes. Um, And then Carnell, he's got a 67.1 PFF grade, a 66.3 run defense grade, a 57.4 tackle grade, and then a 63.5 coverage grade. Um, He's not great at getting his head around. Uh, And then on a one-on-one situation, he's going to try and read the eyes of the receiver rather than uh, get turned around uh, and try and find the ball. Uh, he's also not super fast, uh, which uh, is not just in terms of foot speed, but in terms of reaction, uh, which can make him a bit of a detriment in coverage at times. And then Trevez Johnson, his PFF grades are uh, a bit below average, uh, 54.2 uh, overall, 60.7 run defense, a 49.2 tackle, and a 52.2 coverage. Uh, he's fine. Yeah, that's how I describe him, is he's fine. So, before we get into stories to watch going into the game, this is a defensive team. No matter what Eli Drinkowitz or what anyone else will try and tell you. Because you look at the talent on the team and you think it should be an offensive team. Uh, It's not. Because the person calling the plays is a peanut brain chimp. And his name is Eli Drinkowitz. But, this is a defensive team. And the... I, I, I'm going to spoil it. I'm not projecting the Cats to lose this game because I, I can't really project that. However, there does exist a path for MU to win this game, and that is if they turn it into a rock fight because K-State traditionally has not done very well in rock fights. Look at the Tulane game last year, how that game ended up. I don't think it's likely that this game turns into a rock fight, but if MU is to win... It's because that's what the game eventually turned into. But with that in mind about their defense, we have a a few stories to watch going into the game. And honestly, I feel like this one is the most important. And that's who plays right tackle for K-State. Because that has been undoubtedly the biggest question about the entire offense for K-State the entire year so far. I think this one is a lot easier than it was for us last week because last week we, uh, especially me, I think, uh, but you as well, uh, we were both uh, 
kind of holding out hope for Carver Willis and that faith was kind of misplaced. So I think this week, if it's not Christian Duffy, if he's not ready, then it's Cooper Beebe. And I think those are the two plays. I don't think you should... If you go deeper than that, I'm not comfortable at right tackle. Yeah. Uh, the only other person that I would say is if it's not Duffy and it's not Beebe, Pastore, um, if he's ready to go. But who's to know? who's to say if he is? Especially because he's a natural left tackle. Really hoping that be, that uh, Duffy's back. Really, really hoping for that. That would make that whole issue much simpler. Uh, so hopefully Duffy is back. Um, but the next story to watch is how does Klein try to adjust uh, for the pressure that's brought by Mizzou on nearly every down. That's a very good question. Uh, I. I'm not the offensive coordinator. I don't know. Like, I know what I would do, um, which is I would run, like, a lot of, like, short stick concepts. I'd run a lot of uh, slants or, like, dragon concepts, which is a slant flat. Um, try to attack vertically because every single player that they try to to send is a place where they can't cover. But it's an interesting dance because... Honestly, last year the answer was just kind of have Adrian scramble because that was the one big weakness. Will isn't the athlete that Adrian was, but he's a better passer. So I I would expect we see a lot of quick game and just trust people like RJ, Keegan, Phil, and J-Jack to just break press as soon as possible. Yeah, I I, I think that you're onto something there. Uh, Quick routes... Um, is an easy way. That's uh, a, a pretty standard way to beat pressure. Is the shorter amount of time the ball's in your hands, uh, the less likely it is that you get sacked. So I, there's a lot of logic there, uh, and I imagine that we'll probably be seeing more of that, um, depending on how the offensive line performs early. Yeah. Next question: Can Will keep himself from being sped up by the MU defense? Um, I think there, there's going to be a point in the game where he does get sped up and we have maybe one or two consecutive uh, not-great drives. Because uh, we kind of saw that happen uh, this past weekend against Troy after Will uh, got a little ambitious and threw the pick. Trying uh, the, to see what he can yeah, get away with. Yeah, The drive right after, uh, he definitely looked like he was a little rushed. Uh, and so if he throws a pick or um, just has a bad series, there's a chance that we may see that, but I'm not super worried about that lasting the entire game. We haven't really seen that be an issue yet, uh, so I'm not too worried about it uh, for over the course of the whole game. Yeah, I'd agree. I, the number one thing that I kind of worry about Will in this game is him getting overly ambitious and trying to test corners a bit more often. Um, not because I don't think he can do it, but because I don't think that's necessarily the winning formula for this game. But maybe it is. Maybe Will, you know, I, I think Will's a very good quarterback, so he can probably make it work. But it, it's just not what I would prefer. I'm not a coach on the team, so it doesn't really matter what I want now, does it? Um, but you have, you know what, you can just take the last two because how how uh, interrelated they are. Yeah, so the second to last question is, how do K-State's defensive backs hold up against what is likely the second most athletic receiving room that they will see all year long? 
Yeah, that is the other question of the day because you you look at the other two games and you see the passing game didn't necessarily get going. And uh, I, I'm telling you right now that the wide receivers were better athletes than were on South Dakota and Middle Tennessee State. I'm telling you that right now. But it's it's interesting. Um, I think Jacob Parrish lining up, I, he may just be on Luther Burden duty. I wouldn't hate that if he just basically traced him everywhere he went. Um, but I think the only place that I would be worried about is whoever's playing the slot on like crossing routes. Because if K-State wants to play a lot of man coverage, which they may or may not, depending on how much they want to blitz, um, that's going to be a big concern because they're just so fast. And in Theo Weiss's case, their goal is to body you. Um, I would really enjoy trying to see Theo Weiss body Will Lee. Uh, I think that will go very similarly for him for how it went when he tried to do the same thing to Julius Brents, which is read not very well. But I, I do think it is interesting, and I do think that there will be some times where the receivers are just going to be so athletic that they're going to get theirs. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, that they are going to at some point beat us. Uh, yeah, the receiver core in the passing game hasn't been great uh, through two games. Uh, to me, what that says is that they're probably due. Uh, so I'm expecting that they'll uh, probably burn us at one point or another, which is going to be fine. We'll just have to deal with it and move on. But I'll go ahead and ask you the last question then. Uh, can K-State's receivers uh, break press fast enough um, to give um, Will Howard outlets against the Blitz? The answer I have is two of them almost certainly, and the other two I, I'm unsure about. I think Keegan Johnson and RJ Garcia both have the foot speed to break press pretty consistently. Phil, I think, may get away with it because he'll be off a lot, and it's much harder to press someone who's playing off the line. Uh, J-Jack is the unknown to me. Not because of any athletics reasons, because I think he's as athletic as the defensive backs, but I just don't... I haven't seen enough of him trying to break true press coverage to know if that is his skill set. But, that being said... The, the key is to break press fast enough, not to break press instantly. Which I think that especially Keegan Johnson and RJ Garcia can do pretty handily. Yeah. Um, I think that there's always going to be somebody um, that can get open at least most of the time. There's obviously going to be plays uh, where everyone's just going to get locked up and there's just not going to be much to do about it. Um, but no, I, I think I do agree with you. Uh, Keegan Johnson, I'm expecting him to get open the most. Uh, he, I think, is I'm going to be a prolific route runner, and uh, is going to be really good at shaking people uh, pretty quickly uh, once he uh, uh, really gets going this year. Yeah. Which leads us to the projected offensive and defensive MVPs. My offensive MVP is going to be Keegan Johnson, and my defensive MVP is going to be Brendan Mott. I think Keegan Johnson's the best receiver on K-State, and I think he's just going to be a massive headache no matter... Like I, I think that Blake Baker is game-planning for two people. I think he's game-planning for Ben Sinnott, and I think he's game-planning for Keegan Johnson. And 
Uh, that's not an enviable choice. But I think Keegan Johnson's probably going to be marginally um, the bigger impact than Ben Sennett. And then Brandon Mott, honestly, is just going to be a big motor thing because I think he's going to play disciplined enough to seal off any edges in the outside zone game. And I think that's just going to be his job. It would not surprise me if he only registered like two or three like tackles. But if he wasn't responsible for like causally like three or four tackles for loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, offensively, I had a similar line of thinking of you as you, but I came up with the opposite answer that you did. I had Ben Sennett. Uh, I think Ben is going to be really important uh, to provide those uh, outlets uh, for Will Howard on blitz plays. I could see him really having a big day, especially um, as the game goes on. Uh, and if somebody else starts to perform well and they aren't able to bracket uh, ben Sennett recover him as tightly as they have been I could really see him uh, exploding uh, later in the game to help uh, build a lead if we do have that uh, and then uh, defensively um, I have Austin Moore uh, for my pick I think uh, with how much wide zone they run uh, Austin Moore uh, being able to uh, contain on the weak side and also uh, um just be so good at getting through the line and sifting through uh, to make stops. I think he's going to be huge in this game. Uh, I, I think that uh, his motor and his ability uh, to find himself in the backfield and get tackles for loss is just going to be so important uh, for the defense in this game. Yep, I, I agree. Neither of those are bad picks. But since I led with offensive and defensive MVPs, you can lead with the score projection, my friend. I'm going to project the rightful score of last year with a 40 to 6 margin of victory for K State. Damn. I I'm going to be considerably more conservative about this. I'm going to go 27 to 13 cats. I have no faith in MU's offense whatsoever, and that is independent of me being an MU fan. And actually, it is entirely dependent on me being an MU fan because I've watched this offense. This offense is not good. It's not a particularly explosive offense, and the number one way that they beat you is, honestly, sometimes it feels like on accident. Their defense is what scares me. And like I mentioned earlier, the path for victory in MU in this game is turn this into a rock fight. And I don't want to enjoy a rock fight on my birthday. Or the day after my birthday, I suppose. I don't like that very much. So I'm going to project a 27-13 to 13 Wildcat victory. Do you have any final notes before we, we sign off and let these wonderful people go about their day? Uh, Eli Drinkwitz, uh, kind of pretending not to know who Colin Klein is. Uh, an interesting tactic, uh, because people pretending not to know something about K-State in the past uh, has always gone really well. So Drinkwitz just continues to dig more and more graves for himself i hope this becomes another example of something coming back and biting him uh i guess we'll just have to wait and see but i'm really looking forward to uh see my first ever game in columbia yeah it's a fun environment i imagine a lot of k-state will be there but that pretty much wraps up this episode of the aggieville alley cats podcast thank you all so much for listening 
If you want to follow or contact the show, you can follow us just about anywhere at AggievilleACats. If you want to email us, we're AggievilleAllyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I'm at ACEdwards00. I'm at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where you can find the link in our Twitter bio and the podcast description, and buy such designs as established Alley Cats or the classic Neon Alley Cats. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats. Check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store where you can find the link in our Twitter bio and the podcast description and buy such designs as established alley cats or the classic neon alley cats. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, alley cats.